1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Bible, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, David has the chance to end Saul, but he chooses to obey the Lord instead of seeking vengeance. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 6. Once again, that's 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 6.
2: Look at verse 6. David said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do the thing unto my master. So he's got to explain why he's back, and he's, the only thing he's got to show is not a head or anything else, it's a, it's a, it's a piece of cloth. David explains, The Lord. Forbid that I should do this un- thing unto my master. This is a very complicated Hebrew phrase to translate. The closest I could come is to say that David is saying, Never let me say that out of the Lord I should do this thing. In other words, never let me say, in other words, I, I should have not listened to you guys, and I never will listen to that theology again. The idea that it would be God's plan, that it would come out from him, that I would harm Saul. It is both a confession and a commitment. He says, you guys suggested to me that God was speaking to me through this circumstance. And it was wrong for me to believe those words. And never again will you hear me echo those words. Never again will I step forward to harm my king, my master, the Lord's anointed. Now I might be saying, how can David still see Saul as his king after all he's done to David. I mean, Saul wasn't looking out for David's best interest. He was a horrible king to David. And how could he still call him the Lord's anointed? David, he, I didn't, he's thinking, I didn't pick Saul to be king. I'd rather have somebody else, someone else who would take care of me. Someone else would be a good king to me. Well, that truth swings both ways. Because David didn't pick Saul to be king. God did. And God anointed him to be in this role, even if Saul wasn't doing what God wanted him to do. Seeing he is the anointed of the Lord, I will not stretch forth my hand against him because he is the anointed of the Lord. In other words, it wasn't David's job to fix the problem because it wasn't David's problem. See, how can it not be David's problem? He's being chased down. It's not David's problem, it's the Lord's problem. I was taught by one of my Bible college teachers. You know, when you're going through stuff, like for example, like when the car breaks down, go to the Lord and say, Lord, your car isn't working. The car you gave me that I need to get to my job so I can take care of my family, it's not working. So will you please either come up with an alternate plan for me to take care of my family or will you please provide for the car to be repaired? And that's a whole different way of approaching things than banging at the car because you've tried to fix it seven times and nothing's working. Cursing at the car and whatever it might be. That's a whole different way to approach it. I, I now have children that deal with a lawnmower because they're old enough. But me and lawnmowers have a long, dark history together. And some of you have probably helped me work on my lawnmowers over the years and can testify to my long, dark history with lawnmowers. And man, it was everything within me in the times when they would be breaking down again and I'd be pulling the thing apart and trying to put it back together again and I'd have to do it with gritted teeth. Lord, your long not working and your grass is long. (laughs) And your neighbor that you gave me is unhappy. Keeps mentioning how long my grass is, your grass is, Lord. Man, that is a different way to live. Because then you go to sleep at night because it's not my problem. So what are you going to do the next day? I don't know. It's the Lord's deal. Not mine. My job is to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Right? Lord, you're the provider. You're the one who who deals with these things. Now, this is not exactly what they had hoped or expected to hear David say and. Could you imagine the tension that was in the cave during this conversation? Because they're thinking, okay, well, this was supposed to be an ambush. And if we kind of take out Saul, then maybe, maybe like this all goes away. They're like we can just go back to life. Well, now the ambush has turned into a trap because we're stuck in here and he's out there and the army's out there and we, we got nowhere to go. That these men are restrained by David is evidence of the respect they had for him and his character. It says, David stayed his servants with these words. These words that he spoke stayed them. The word stayed means to speak content, which points out the wrong ideas or wrong behavior and shows the proper way to go instead. It usually is translated to rebuke or admonish. It's not that David just kept him back. He corrected them. He admonished them. He said, guys, you're wrong. And here's why you're wrong. And here's what we need to do. But he did not allow them to rise up against Saul. There were other men who were willing and ready to kill Saul. They would say, David, I'll go in there and do it. But David's love for truth held them back. I want that to be a testimony in my life. Well, it says, but... Saul rose up as this is all going on. He rose up out of the cave and he went on his way just as if nothing happened. None the wiser. I wonder how many times in my 46 years God has spared my life and I had no clue. It is very easy to criticize the Lord when something goes wrong due to our limited information of what we don't know that he's done that we would be so grateful for. That's why the scripture urges us to humble ourselves. It's why humility is required to receive grace. We have to acknowledge that we are not God, that we don't know everything. There's so much we don't know and have not seen. Well, David and his men are still in a very precarious situation, and David decides to make it worse. (laughs) He decides to trust the Lord even more with his next decision. Look at verse 8. So then David also arose afterward, and he went out of the cave, and he cried out after Saul, saying, My lord and king. And when Saul looked behind him, Saul turned around. David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. Talk about like a complete turn of a situation. I mean, Saul is completely exposed. He's completely vulnerable. He has no clue what's going on. And now David has just done the same exact thing and turned the tables to where Saul has him, where David had Saul just a few minutes earlier. The word afterward means very little delay. There's not going to be much space between Saul and David once David gets outside. And he says to him, I mean, he announces his presence, my lord and the king. My lord, the king. And when Saul turned around. David puts himself in a completely vulnerable position. The word there for Lord is the word Adonai. It's certainly a word that's normally used for God when we speak of his ownership, his being sovereign. But it is also a title of respect given to a superior when it's used for another human being. He says, treats him with respect and he calls him his king, the king. You know, it's interesting, we might make the mistake that David had a right to come to Saul as an equal because they'd both been anointed by God to be king, right? I mean, if anybody had the logical reason to actually speak to Saul like an equal, it would be David. And in a sense, David could even say, well, you've been rejected by the Lord and I'm the future. But David makes it clear that he still holds Saul as his king and he has no intention of overthrowing him. He makes it clear that he submitted to Saul's leadership despite Saul's mistreatment of him. He stooped, the word there means to bow down or kneel down. We know it's bow down because it says with his face to the earth and he bowed himself. There is no more vulnerable position David could be in from a physical standpoint to defend himself. If Saul takes a few steps, David is a dead man. There's no way to block a blow or or whatever. He is in every way subject to his king at this moment. You know, sometimes people say, "Why, why do people raise hands during worship?" And, and there's lots of different reasons, but one of the reasons is because it, it's a vulnerable position. You're, you're saying, "Lord, I trust you. I, I am making myself vulnerable. I trust you completely." I am, I am you, know, you know, like when you do the, the you do the, the, the fall, the, the you know, where you fall back and your your coworkers are supposed to catch you. I, I have never gone to one of those where the person actually like falls. It's always kind of like because they don't trust him. So why you're there. David is in every way subject to his king at this moment. This type of humility and faith would be considered suicidal by many in the church today, at least by the theology I'm hearing taught. However, David is living out what Jesus would someday do and what Jesus commanded us through his servant Peter to emulate. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we have one of the most unpopular sections of Scripture in our culture right now. Honestly, I think if some had their way, I think they would be like Martin Luther who ripped out James out of the Bible. We'd like to get rid of this one. doesn't fit with our modern-day theology. 1 Peter 2.18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, all respect, reverence. Not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the King James' says, froward. It means harsh. For doing so, this is thankworthy, commendable. If a man for conscience towards God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. If you're doing it because of your conscience towards God, you're trying to honor the Lord. That is a commendable thing. For what glory is it if when you be beaten for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, that is commendable before God. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile back. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him that judges righteously unpopular theology it has been recently argued by many men who in the past i would have said they're good bible teachers but we're not subjects we're free men here this doesn't apply to us well let me ask you a question about jesus then was he a subject or was he a free man well he's under rome he's a subject Let's hear from jesus's own lips Matthew 17. It's one of my favorite stories. I'm not someone who goes fishing frequently. Uh, but I know that those who do absolutely love it. Peter's a fisherman. Peter gets himself into a bit of an awkward situation here. In verse 24 of Matthew 17, it says, And when they were come to Capernaum, Those that received the tribute money came to Peter and said to him, does your master pay the the tribute? And this is not taxes from the Roman government. This is a a temple tax that the religious leaders enforced. And so they asked him, hey, does your master pay the the temple tribute? And uh, he said, well, yes. I mean, that's all we get from Peter. But the thought, of course, of course he does. Of Of course my master pays the temple tribute. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus, (laughs) the Bible says, anticipated him. In other words, Peter's coming in, and he's got a question. He's like, yeah, we pay the temple tax, right? But but Jesus anticipates him. He anticipates the question, and he, he beats Peter to the punch. And he says, what do you think, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or strangers, foreigners? Their own people or foreigners? And Peter said to him, Well, foreigners, strangers, of course. And so Jesus said unto him, Well, then, then are the sons free, aren't they? Jesus is telling Peter, he's going, Peter, we don't we don't need to do this because we are free. But then look at what he says. He says, I'm a free man, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. In other words, there's a greater purpose here. There's more that God's trying to accomplish. God has given us instructions so we don't stumble others when it concerns the gospel. He's called us to live a certain way so we don't stumble others concerning the gospel. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go there out to the sea and cast a hook and take up the fish that first comes up. And when you've opened his mouth, you shall find a piece of money. Take that and give them for me and for you. Jesus considered himself a free man because his father owned everything. And yet he subjected himself to the authorities because his father commanded him to, and for the gospel's sake. David did likewise here. We're going to see as he interacts with Saul here, his heart as he's trying to win Saul over. And so he does this Certainly not for his own sake, because every step he takes here puts himself in further danger. But he's trying to reach Saul. Well, what happens? Well, it wasn't David's time to go, and the Lord saw fit to deliver him. Saul does not kill him. In fact, Saul allows David to address him. And so in verse 9, David said to Saul, back here in 1 Samuel 24, Wherefore do you hear these men's words, saying, Behold, David seeks your hurt. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how that the Lord has delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and some bade me kill you. But my eyes spared you, and I said, I will not put forth my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the skirt of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the skirt of your robe and did not kill you. Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my soul to take it. David here, he asks Saul, he starts off by asking Saul why he's listening to slander. Where it says, wherefore, it's just why? Why, Saul? Why are you out here after me? That question permeates the entire conversation that David has with Saul here. It is a question that David cannot fathom a good answer to. Why are you hunting me? He doesn't get it. In fact, he suggests that Saul's suspicions about David didn't arise from Saul because no reasonable person would think that way about David. Then it arose from others. Why are you listening to men who are telling you, wake up Saul, it's obvious David's after the throne. Why are you listening to them? Now we know the truth. No one was telling Saul this. The murderous behavior did arise from Saul's own heart, from his own jealousy and guilt. David is a far more kind and gracious man than me. I need to be more like David is here, more like Jesus, assuming the best and not the worst. Because that's what love does. Believes the best. When David asks this question and Saul doesn't answer, David offers two proofs of his innocence in verse 10 and 11. He says, behold, in other words, Saul, so pay attention to something real instead of people's speculations. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord delivered me into your hand today, into, I'm sorry, how that the Lord had delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And some bade me kill you, but my eyes spared you. The phrase here, spared, it means to show mercy, despair from great punishment. He says, I spared you, Saul. I did not give you what you deserve. And I said, I will not put forth my hand against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed. The first proof of my innocence, Saul, is that you were vulnerable. I could have killed you easily. You didn't even know I was behind you until I spoke. But I didn't kill you because I refused to do harm to my king. You're still my king, Saul. And then his second proof of his innocence is in verse 11. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the skirt of your robe in my hand for in that I cut off the skirt of your robe and killed you not and know and thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in my hand. If you leave with nothing else today, Saul, recognize right here that I've done nothing wrong. The phrase there for wrong, it means evil. The word there for transgression, it means wrong intentions. He says, if you leave with nothing else, to say, look at this thing in my hand. Look at this thing as proof and evidence that I've done nothing evil toward you and I intend nothing evil toward you. The only one here that's in the wrong is you. I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my soul to take it. David is again so very gracious to Saul by seeking to reason with a man who's not shown himself to be in any way reasonable. You know, the old proverb states that two wrongs don't make a right. I was taught that as one of the youngest points of my life. You know, when you get in a scrap with your friend, you know, oh you did this. Mom would always tell me, Two wrongs don't make a right. Man, you don't even hear that anymore. You don't even hear it anymore. I hear so many Christians today excuse wrong behavior because of the wrong things done to them. They'll say things like, well, how do you expect me or how do you expect this other person to respond when, when someone's being rude to them or someone's being unkind to them or someone's wronging them? I expect you to respond like someone who has the Holy Spirit living inside of them. I expect you to respond like someone who's seeking to emulate Jesus. What do you mean, what do I expect you to do? Same thing that Jesus expects of me. And so, while David is gracious, he doesn't excuse Saul's wrongdoing. He says, "It's like we can't. It's like we can't handle the truth." So we, no, you gotta love people. Like, oh, okay. So just just don't ever even point out wrong. And it's like, what? Wait a second. How about we just come to the truth where we're gracious and we speak truth about sin, where we're kind and we and we don't repay evil for evil, but we point out evil. It's like we, can't, we struggle so much. It's like you're either got to be on, the, on the this end or on this end, and you can't just stay in the truth. I know it's a struggle for me. David doesn't hide the truth from Saul. He says, you're out here hunting me. I haven't done anything wrong to you. I don't intend anything wrong to you. This proves it. But you're the one out here hunting me. David, like Jesus in this instance, is full of grace and truth, the way we're supposed to be. Again, Saul remains quiet. And when Saul still doesn't respond, David finally appeals to the Lord for justice. Verse 12 The Lord judge between me and you, and the Lord avenge me of you, but my hand shall not be upon you. As says the proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be upon you. The word therefore judge in verse 12, the Lord judge between me and you. It means to adjudicate a matter between two parties. In other words, there's conflict here. So all clearly, I'm pouring my heart out to you and you're saying nothing. There's clearly a conflict here. So I'm appealing to the Lord to be the one to look at both of us and the points that we're making, the arguments that we have against each other. I'm gonna appeal to him to adjudicate the matter. And I'm going to appeal to him to avenge me of you. Uh, The word there, avenge, means to bring justice for the innocent by exacting punishment on the guilty. If you won't do the right thing, Saul, then I take my appeal to the Lord to deal with you because I'm not going to take justice into my own hands. And why won't David do that? Because doing so would make him just like Saul. If you want to read a good book, read a book called Three Kings. It covers Saul, David, and Absalom. It is awesome. Because when it gets to a certain point with David with Absalom, it shows how David had every opportunity to be just like Saul with Absalom, but he was not. And Absalom had been everything Saul thought David was. And yet David still didn't treat Absalom like Saul treated David. He says, as the proverb of the ancients says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked. Now, David did not get this saying from Scripture. There's nowhere in Scripture that that line occurs. We don't know who originally spoke this ancient proverb, but the truth of the proverb is spoken in Scripture. In Matthew 7, verses 16 through 18, You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes or thorns of figs or or thistles? The obvious answer is no. If you're going to go to thorns, you're not going to expect to get grapes. If you're going to go to thistles, you're not going to expect to get figs. Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. The idea here is David knows if he takes action that the Lord says not to do, then he's no different than Saul. Even if others might say, well, you have good reason to do what you're doing. Basically, what David's saying is only a wicked man would want to avenge himself. And you know what? My actions prove that I am not a wicked man. I don't think that way toward you, Saul. And I know God knows that, and I'm going to trust him to bring justice when it's necessary, which is the principle that Jesus taught us to live by.
1: This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online